Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Welcome to Dig, a history podcast. Hey listeners, a little disclaimer before we begin. We'll be talking about some pretty gruesome stuff in this episode, so you might want to put the earbuds in for this one. Neighbors and passerby commented on the strange sounds that emanated from the stately mansion. People spoke about the house as if it were already haunted, a house that was only a few years old at the time. Surely it was a grand house, with all the lavish accoutrements that an elegant New Orleans townhome. But something was not right. City dwellers whispered among themselves that the home's owners had some dark secrets to hide. Enslaved people and free people of color whispered among themselves of what they knew was true. But the horrors of what went on inside were not laid bare until the early morning hours of April 10, 1834, when the mansion at 1140 Rue Royale in New Orleans, Louisiana, caught flame. The people of New Orleans were shocked to discover the truth about the home and its owners, Madame Delphine LaLaurie and Dr. Louis LaLaurie, were far worse than any rumors they could have imagined. The fire was believed to have been set by their enslaved cook in retaliation for the cruel abuse that she and her fellow enslaved had endured. When passerbys rushed into the house to help those inside escape, they were shocked to find starved and mutilated bondspeople held and even chained inside. Stories of the LaLauries, particularly Madame Delphine LaLaurie, have become common horror tales. Numerous tours, books, and videos document the depraved events that happened in the home on Rue Royale. In fact, the third season of American Horror Story, Coven, even takes the characters and weaves them into a fictional tale. Today, when you take a popular haunted history tour in New Orleans, you'll be regaled with accounts of human tragedy and suffering while standing outside of the present-day mansion in the heavy, humid New Orleans night. 
I've been on a few of these haunted tours in New Orleans, and they vary in their degree of theatrics and storytelling, truth and fiction. Some are great tours that offer an insightful look at the histories, tragedies, and vibrance of the city. Others are crass, gruesome, and stereotypical. The last time I was on one of these tours, uh, a tour guide told our group that a fire broke out at the house during a lavish party that was spilling out into the street. When firefighters rushed inside, they were appalled by what they found. Our tour guide regaled us with the horrors that were found inside that night, so gruesome that firefighters ran out into the street and vomited because of what they found. In the attic, they found an operating room full of human experiments. Enslaved people in various degrees of life and death were inside, some with horrific surgical atrocities done to them, covered in maggots and excrement. Our guide spoke of a woman whose legs had been broken over and over again until they fused into a sort of human accordion, making her walk crab-like and lived crouch inside a trunk. He spoke of people chained to the walls with various appendages sewn to their bodies. He also spoke of how, years later, when new owners were renovating the house, a gruesome discovery was under the floor. When workers pulled up the floorboards, they discovered the bones of multiple bodies, and the most shocking part were the scratch marks on the underside of the floorboards, showing that the people had been buried alive in the house. Because of these atrocities, the LaLaurie Mansion is said to be one of the most haunted houses in the French Quarter. The extreme and shocking stories that are told about the LaLaurie House are egregiously exaggerated and overwhelmingly gloss over the real issues of race, gender, and violence prevalent within the institution of slavery. Yet we still voyeuristically consume these types of ghost stories. In this episode, part of our spooky series, we're exploring the story of 1140 Rue Royale, its haunted history, so to speak, and delving into the events, the media coverage, and the urban legend that grew from the events that took place in the early morning hours of April 10th, 1834. I'm Elizabeth. And I'm Sarah. And we are your historians for this episode of Dig. <laughs> Hey listeners, just a note here to remind you about our Patreon account. This podcast is entirely self-funded. We get no institutional support and we pay for everything that it takes to host this podcast out of our own pockets. Everything from our microphones to our web hosting to, you know, our coffee. <laughs> Visit patreon.com slash dig podcast to help us keep bringing you interesting history stories. Ghost hunters, psychics, and the generally curious flock to New Orleans to track and find the existence of ghosts or paranormal entities circulating among us. According to Gallup polling, one in three Americans believe in paranormal activity. Plenty of people have professed to have experienced weird, unexplainable things. Popular stories shared about the ghosts at the LaLaurie Mansion include the story of a man who once ran a furniture store out of the bottom floor of the reconstructed mansion. He reported that his stock was constantly and mysteriously being stained with blood, feces, and urine. Another is the sighting of a male ghost who turns towards the viewer with his mouth open in a mute scream, exposing the nub at the back of his throat where his tongue should be. Ugh. <laughs> 
Every haunted house has a story, and the LaLaurie Mansion in New Orleans is no exception. The mansion and the story behind it are prevalently featured in present-day horror story collections and cable shows. But this is nothing new. The LaLaurie atrocities have a long run in the annals of horror, urban legend, and ghost stories. Primarily, the narrative centers around Madame Delphine LaLaurie, a Creole woman descended from French colonists. She is described as beautiful, as having a glow about her, but also as sadistic and maniacal in her cruelty and insidiousness towards the enslaved people that she owned. Madame Delphine was 40 years old when she married Louis LaLaurie. He was 25. Louis was her third husband, the previous two having died of natural causes. Sure. She, they did. <laughs> if this was a different kind of podcast, you'd be like, hmm. <laughs> Louis was born and studied medicine in France and moved to New Orleans in 1825. Newspapers from the time touted Louis as a doctor adept at the newly discovered French practice of, quote, destroying hunches. New Orleans had few doctors at the time, although plenty of people practiced healing arts and many free women of color worked in the city as midwives and healers. Interestingly, later LaLaurie descendants intent on reclaiming their good name brushed off the screams that people said they heard coming from the LaLaurie house as emanating from the patients that Dr. LaLaurie was working on while straightening their crooked backs. Delphine gave birth to Louis's child five months before they actually married, although that didn't seem to affect her social standing. Accounts suggest that their marriage was never a happy one. An 1828 letter written by a nearby neighbor describes the Lillery marriage, uh, quote, they do not have a happy household. They fight, often separate, and then return to each other, which would make one believe that someday they will abandon each other completely. In 1831, led, it seems, primarily by Delphine, since she brought most of the money into the marriage, the LaLauries moved to the newly constructed house at 1140 Rue Royale on the corner of Royal and Hospital Street, which would later be renamed Governor Nichols Street. The original home was a stately two-story townhome and looked much different from the current austere gray urban mansion, which has had some additions since 1831, including a flat-roofed third story. And just a side note, uh, Nicholas Cage actually used to own this house for a couple of years in the in the 2000s. Um, but people actually said that he never slept there. So I oh, why. Yeah. I, I wonder what he did do there. <laughs> uh. <laughs> Sorry, that was me. Okay, um, that's very strange. Contemporaries described the home as a beautiful brand new home with an iron balcony and many amenities. Many of the townhomes built in New Orleans used the bottom floor as shops or workspaces. However, it doesn't appear the LaLauries used their ground floor for such. The upstairs held bedrooms, a parlor, and dining room, and above that was attic space that may have held rooms for domestic servants. A stone fence enclosed a courtyard behind the house and housed a well, a privy, an outhouse, and a two-story service wing built off of the house that contained the kitchen and the slave quarters. There were probably other outbuildings as well, such as a carriage house and a laundry. Needless to say, it was, and it still is, a pretty grand house. It was also a fairly full house. Delphine and Louis lived with their son, Jean-Louis Lalaurie, and four of Delphine's second husband's siblings lived with them as well, Pauline, age 23, Lar, age 19, 
Jean, age 18, and Pollen, aged 17. They all are named essentially the same thing. Yeah, it's pretty much. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm sure they probably pronounce it way better and different than... It's just <laughs> funny. Know? It's like Pauline and Pollen and Jean and yeah. John and Lore just, and LaLaurie. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes. But, right. So needless to say, it was a big house, yeah, right? There's a lot yeah. of people. It's a huge house. Right. Uh, Pauline actually left the home in 1833 when she married. And then Pollen left the same year to attend Yale University. He went to Yale? He went to Yale. So he went to Yale. Exonerated. Wow, exonerated. <laughs> you can't do anything bad if you've ever been to Yale. If you can't tell what week we are recording these episodes in, yeah. you know. Anyway. Additionally, Delphine's married children from her previous marriages lived a few blocks away, as well as the free women of color her male relatives, including her father, had held as mistresses over the past decades, along with their nearly white children. In fact, Delphine served as godmother to several of her father's children with his free quadroon mistress, her half-brothers and sisters, and even gifted her half-sister Emissy a young slave of her own. So a lot of really complicated stuff there. Many white women did not associate themselves with their mixed-race siblings, and there's no indication that Delphine treated her own mixed-race siblings or nieces, nephews, and cousins with the same respect as her white family members, but there is an interesting history here for sure, and this is an example of the unique culture in New Orleans in regards to the color line. Urban legend and horror writers have contributed Delphine's cruelty towards her slave as an act of revenge against her father and her other white relatives, using the existence of her mixed-race family members as reason for her rage at the Black people under her control. But historians have found no evidence to confirm or deny those claims. However, rumors and court cases involving Delphine's cruel treatment of her slaves began to spread. Even before the Lollaries had moved into the house on Royal Street, Delphine was involved in a court case involving the treatment of her enslaved. And in 1832, she was indicted for abusing her slaves and was made to pay a fine to the court as well as pay her lawyer's fees. She paid these fines by selling some of the slaves she inherited from her parents. So she's selling some people... Um, that she owned in order to pay the fines for mistreating the other people that she owned. And actually, that was not that uncommon, right. unfortunately. Right, yeah, yeah. The LaLaurie house was filled with lavish interior and furnishings. They hosted grand parties that were frequented by New Orleans high society. However, not all was right in the house. Louis spent a lot of time away from home. In 1832, Delphine petitioned the first judicial district court for a marital separation, stating Louis treated her badly and had, quote, in the presence of many witnesses, beat and wounded her in the most outrageous and cruel manner. She told the court that Louis was spending most of his time away and asked the judge to, quote, authorize her to live separately from her husband in the home she now occupies with her family at the corner of Royal and Hospital Streets. As you'll remember from our Marriage in America and Coverture episodes, the law was not necessarily on the side of the wife. According to the Louisiana Civil Code, a husband could separate from a wife if she committed adultery, but a wife could only get a divorce if the husband kept, quote, his concubine in their common dwelling. Also, a divorce could be granted if their living together rendered their lives, quote, unsupportable, or one person threatened the life of the other. Delphine's petition stated that her life was rendered unsupportable because of the physical beatings she endured. Ultimately, they did stay married, but separated in property. 
However, Louise still visited the home and was living at the residence in the early morning hours of April 10th, 1834, when the fire broke out. According to papers published within days of the fire, the flames began in the kitchen and quickly spread to the service wing and slave quarters at the rear of the house. One of those that first responded to the fire was Judge Jacques-Francois Canyonier, who in his later deposition said that, quote, on arriving, he was apprised of there being in one of the apartments some slaves who were chained and were exposed to perish in the conflagration. When Canonier confronted the Lolleries about these concerns, he stated that both Louis and Delphine replied that the allegation was, quote, a slander. When Canonier demanded to know if there were any slaves in his garret, Louis reportedly said, quote, there are those who would be better employed if they would attend to their own affairs instead of officiously intermeddling with the concern of other people. Right. <laughs> I'm sure he said that as his house is on fire, right? right? <laughs> of these depositions. But what Louis essentially was saying uh, was let them burn. Yeah. Stay out of my business. The fire was quickly spreading throughout the building, so Judge Quinone ordered the crowd to break down the doors. Those that entered were met with an appalling sight as, quote, several wretched Negroes came from the service wing, their bodies covered with scars and loaded with chains. As rescuers ventured in further, they discovered, quote, seven slaves, more or less horribly mutilated, suspended by the neck with their limbs stretched and torn from one extremity to the other. One woman described as an, quote, elderly negress was inside with a, quote, deep wound on her head. Another enslaved woman was chained in the kitchen. A third woman was fitted with an iron collar and was, quote, chained with heavy irons by the feet. Another man had a, quote, large hole in his head, his body covered from head to foot with scars and filled with worms. They found a mulatto boy, using their words there, who said he had been, quote, chained for five months, being fed daily with only a handful of meal and receiving every morning the most cruel treatment. Contemporary media reports of the fire were quick and widespread. Between April 10th and April 15th, the New Orleans papers, The Bee, The Courier, and the New Orleans Mercantile Advertiser carried stories of the ghastly event, which were written in both French and in English. The Bee reported that, quote, the elderly negress declared to the mayor that it was she who set the house afire with the intention of terminating the sufferings of herself and her companions. The injured bondspeople were taken to the Cabildo, or the city hall, for protection and medical treatment. The French edition of the Bee reported that, quote, at least 2,000 persons visited the jail to be convinced of the sufferings experienced by these unhappy ones. Several have also seen the instruments which were used by these villains, pinchers that were applied to their victims to make them suffer all matter of tortures, iron collars with sharpened points, and a number of other instruments for punishment impossible to describe. So already there's this voyeuristic element to this case as people are clamoring to get inside and see what happened to these people. An angry mob also gathered outside the Lollery home and finding the family gone, destroyed much of the house's interior, smashing furniture and basically stripped the home of anything of value. Four days later, it was reported that the yard was dug up and bodies removed, including the body of a child. 
In the weeks and months that followed the fire, national newspapers took up the story, especially the abolitionist press. The spectator aspect that ran through the reporting of the LaLaurie scandal dwelled on the most lurid and horrific examples of slavery's evils in order to animate moral imagination and encourage action. Readers of the abolitionist paper, The Liberator, were assured that, had they witnessed the events firsthand, they would recoil in terror and then be flooded with sympathy. Quote, we saw one of the miserable beings. The sight was so horrible that we could scarce look upon it. The most savage heart could not have witnessed the spectacle unmoved. In May, the Liberator published stories um, kind of reprinted from the New Orleans advertiser of the mob that formed outside of the Capildo and the Lollery House and added, quote, it is evident to our mind that it was not slaveholders who prosecuted these investigations and brought forth the bones of the miserable victims of as diabolical a system of tyranny as has ever disgraced the annals of mankind. No, no, it was not slaveholders. They were alarmed at these proceedings. They were frightened at the threats of vengeance on other persons who had been guilty of similar conduct to that of Madame Lalaurie. Madame, how polite to this tiger. The abolitionist press went further in the reportings on the story. They not only recounted the events in all of their gruesome, worm-filled details, but also broadened their focus as a condemnation on slavery in its entirety. They pointed out that slaveholders weren't alarmed at the event, just alarmed that the anger over the event would spread and expose all slaveholders as accomplices. The Christian secretary repent reprinting a New Orleans Bee article on May 3rd, 1834, and extrapolating upon it, called Delphine LaLaurie a demon in the shape of a woman. The Free Inquirer specifically called Delphine a female monster and went on to describe the atrocities in the house. Quote, seven poor, unfortunate slaves were found, some chained to the floor, others with chains around their necks fastened to the ceiling, and one poor man, upwards of 60 years of age, chained hand and foot and made fast to the floor in a kneeling position. His head bore the appearance of having been beaten until it was broken, and the worms were actually to be seen making a feast in his brains. A woman had her back literally cooked, if the expression may be used, with the last. The very bones might be seen projecting through the skin. But I will not dwell upon a subject so truly horrible. It's one of my favorite things about 19th century newspapers. They tell you every last detail and they're like, but let's not dwell on this. But, 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 but I can't explain Right. This. Even After though I I've just, just did. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> And yet, with the exception of one newspaper account's description of a child slave describing his ill treatment, that boy found chained and served only a handful of meal a day, we never have access to the language of the black victims themselves. The horrors of the event were squarely laid at the feet of Madame Delphine, not her husband Louis. She is centered as the mastermind of the torture and described as a devil and a tiger, with hardly a mention of Louis. Women were a central tenet in the spectacle or voyeurism prevalent in 19th century culture, open to display and to judgment. According to the ideals of 19th century sentimentalism, women were supposed to be the keepers of the home, the ideal domestic respite from the harshness of the outside world. So a preoccupation with the woman 
a woman who had overstepped her place, who was overbearing, who committed cruelties in a supposed place of domestic bliss, who was perhaps haughty or vain, and who perhaps used her vanity and beauty to mask the terror within, those questions fueled the story surrounding the fire. What kind of womanhood did Delphine Lollery represent? Was she a good woman or a bad woman? And the side of public opinion and urban legend have squarely come down on the side of bad, of a woman who did not fit inside the ideal of perfect womanhood. And modern-day depictions of the event continue to suggest that her husband Louis was nothing more than a passive bystander. Now, I'm not saying she wasn't cruel, mm -hmm. but more contextualizing the gendered aspects of the event. Harriet Martineau, a prominent English social theorist and member of the transatlantic abolition movement, was the first to write a long narrative of the LaLaurie event. She wrote in 1838, Louis was many years younger than his lady and had nothing to do with the management of her property, so that he has been in no degree mixed up with her affairs and disgraces, essentially exonerating Louis LaLaurie on the basis of his inattention to household matters. This idea of Delphine as a controlling mistress and Louis as an indifferent or sometimes even emasculated younger husband persists in the retelling of the story to this day. Martineau described Delphine as a, quote, French Creole, graceful and accomplished, so charming in her manners and so hospitable that no one ventured openly to question her perfect goodness. So essentially a devil in disguise. She goes on to write that Delphine was the one who kept her slaves in, quote, a wretched condition. Martineau also fueled some of the aspects of the Lollary horror story that swirl between historical and urban legend. She was the first to write some backstory into this tale, elements that have never been proven by historical records, recounting that a neighbor once saw Lollary chase a young enslaved girl onto the roof. Rather than receive a beating from the whip that Delphine held in her hand, the girl jumped off the roof to her death. Martineau also added to the urban legend by writing that Lollary was whisked away by her carriage the night of the fire, but that an angry mob attacked the carriage, tore it to pieces, and then stabbed the horses to death. Aww. Yet somehow, however, the Lollaries escaped. Poor horses. <laughs> In reality, Delphine did make it to Paris, where she died in 1849, and according to writer Carolyn Moreau-Long, who has done an excellent archival dive into the Lollary atrocity, Delphine's remains were exhumed in 1851 and reburied in a family tomb in New Orleans Cemetery No. 1. Hmm, that's interesting. The LaLaurie atrocities found renewed interest in the 1880s, amid a time of both extreme racial violence and a movement to forget the ills of slavery. In the 1888 book, Strange True Tales of Louisiana, travel writer George Washington Cable added a ghostly mystique to the story by writing, quote, The neighborhood is very still, the streets are almost empty of life, and the cleanness of their stone pavements is largely the cleanness of disuse positioning the LaLaurie Mansion as a haunted place where no one ventured. He writes about the house as most assuredly haunted. In great detail, he described the home's doors that mysteriously opened by themselves, the walls, ceilings, balconies, and windows, centering the house as a character in his story. When he winds his way to the slave quarters, he writes that those types of service wings were common in New Orleans, but some of the features in the LaLaurie's quarters were not, such as seven-inch locks, 
and windows with iron grates over them with solid iron shutters. He describes, quote, full length batten shutters attached by iron hooks that covered the doorway to the slave quarters. This doorway, he writes, is where the ghosts travel to and from the house. His story is the first written account of a ghost at the house seen by a young white girl who, 50 years after the fire, saw the ghost of the eight-year-old enslaved girl who apparently jumped to her death instead of being beaten by Delphine. I see what's happening there. 50 yeah. years later, yeah. this one story from Martineau, and then Cable kind of right. builds on that. Somebody that's actually seen that ghost now. Yeah. Right? So from here on, the Lollary atrocities were fodder for ghost stories rather than a condemnation of slavery, as other writers built on Cable's ghost stories and added details of their own. Many of the stories surrounding the event posit that slavery in New Orleans was not as bad as in other places. They highlight the fact that a mob broke into the Lollary house, trashing it after word got out about the cruelties committed towards Bond's people. And they hold this up as evidence that the city did not abide by ex excessive abuse of slaves, um, while also glossing over the fact that those who were outraged were not elite slaveholders. Others attribute Delphine's French Creole heritage to the cruel treatment she enacted on those she owned, instead of centering it within the acceptable parameters of what slaveholders were allowed to do to their enslaved. Mm -hmm. And historian Thavolia Glimpf has demonstrated through really careful analysis of diaries and letters belonging to slaveholding women in the South, in addition to slave narratives, that in fact white women across the South were extremely violent towards the slaves in their households. Right. Right. So these quote unquote reasonings are one way that allowed people at the time and today as well, uh, a way to voyeuristically look at the Lollary story while also viewing it as an outlier, right? A break in the quote unquote norm without dealing with the actual horrors of slavery in its entirety. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A Washington Post travel writer wrote in 1895 about the demon mistress LaLaurie and described her crimes as explanations for the home's apparent hauntings. He wrote an event, quote, for a slight misdemeanor would cause a finger of an offender to be cut off today and perhaps another one tomorrow and another on the next day. Yet the people who LaLaurie committed her crimes against were rarely acknowledged and the system of slavery that allowed her crimes to be committed were never explored. The people that violence was committed against are not central to the story unless they are the silent ghosts that move around the house. Later writers built on Martineau and Cable and added new, more extreme elements to the ghost story. The stories of medical experimentation were added to the urban legend around 1946 when fiction writer Jean Delevingne published Ghost Stories of Old New Orleans. Uh, here is where we find many of the stories that present-day haunted history tours, so like the one that I described at the beginning, uh, where they get those, those, those stories, right? Um, so Delphine is depicted living in lavish luxury while her laves, quote, were stark naked, chained to the wall, their eyes gouged out, their fingernails pulled off by the roots, their ears hanging by shreds, their lips sewn together, their tongues drawn out and sewed to their chins, severed hands stitched to bellies, legs pulled joint from joint. She also writes about the ghosts that haunt the house, like the grisly little girl who goes shrieking through the shrill air as she jumps from the rooftop every night. 
Numerous other novels and true crime stories have been written about the LaLaurie Mansion, each recreating and pushing the story to further and further extremes. And so there's no doubt that horrible things happened within the LaLaurie Mansion. But one has to wonder if the goings on were really that different from the horrors of slavery happening in some degree among all slaveholding households. The macabre preoccupation with the twisted experiments in the insanity of Delphine herself gives people a way to talk about slavery without actually talking about slavery. Instead, we voyeuristically see the story of a crazed woman and the diabolical pain she inflicted on others as opposed to a story about a violent tempered and perhaps an abused wife who in turn abused and inflicted violence on the people she owned. And I think Taya Miles sums it up perfectly in her book, Tales from the Haunted South. And so I'm just going to quote her directly because it's just really good. Madame Delphine Lalaurie is consistently described as mad and insane in published treatments of her history. In the garret of her urban mansion, she is said to have committed the vilest acts of sadistic lunacy. But instead of Madame Lalaurie being a rare type of slave mistress and a rare type of slave society... Historical evidence suggests that she was among many in the New Orleans area and greater South who treated African-Americans like chattel, and often brutally so. Entertaining stories of the haunted house on Royal Street depend on the vilification of the central character, Madame LaLaurie, whose guilt absolves New Orleans slaveholders in the past and the New Orleans tourist industry in the present from responsibility for committing or sensationalizing acts of racialized violence. Yeah, this actually really um, reminds me of this article that I wrote several years ago for Nursing Cleo which was about this sort of ill-fated trip that I took out um, into the Finger Lakes in New York to visit uh, one of the asylums that I write about in my dissertation and in my book, Mm -hmm. um, which was the Willard Asylum in Ovid, New York. Mm -hmm. And they had this program where as a fundraiser for like a child care center that's now on the the, um, campus of where that asylum was – they would open the asylum up once a year because now it's just closed. It's it's abandoned. Okay. Um, it's it's shuttered. It just sits there. Okay. They would open it once a year and they would let people go on a tour. And there would be one tour that would leave at 9 a.m. and one tour that would leave at 1 p.m. No advanced ticket sales. Like you just had to show up at those times and hope that you'd get a ticket. Yeah. And I had learned about it and I... I was like, well, this is my one chance to get in there and look at it. I've I've read so much about it. Mm -hmm. So I drove out and I get, I mean, Ovid's in the middle of nowhere, right? I get off the thruway, drive into Ovid, nothing going on. All of a sudden I'm hit with this wall of traffic. I mean, it was just miles and miles of parked cars, like, you know, just sitting there. No traffic is moving. And we would inch along and At first, I was in denial. I was like, there must be an event at one of the wineries in the area. And then as I got to the the entrance to the campus where the asylum is, I see there's just troopers and sheriff's cars and police officers everywhere. And they're just walking up and down the the street talking to the cars. And Mm -hmm. finally, they get to my car. And I was like... I'm trying to get in for the for the tour. And he was like, no, you're not. They're, they're not accepting any more people. They're turning everyone away. Yeah. And it turned out that I can't remember the exact numbers, but it was like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people had like 
flooded the campus to try to get in on this tour uh-huh. when the year before they had like struggled to get like 150 people or yeah. something between the two tours yeah there were so many people that showed up for the second one that they actually had to call it off and cancel it yeah and they've never done it since this was wow. maybe three years ago or four uh-huh. years ago and you know at first i was very much like well that's annoying i mean <laughs> i couldn't yeah. be- i and i really was confused i was like why did this happen and somebody encouraged me to write about it for nursing cleo and i thought well what's there to write you know yeah <laughs> it's weird yeah um but then as i chewed on it for a while i thought about it for a couple months and i started to kind of poke around to see how it had been advertised and and to see if maybe anyone had explained what had happened. Mm -hmm. And I found that it had been profiled on various different haunted history travel Mm -hmm. sites. Like Mm -hmm. these are places that you should go and see and on local like ghost hunting club websites. Yeah. And so when they announced that they were having the tour, all of these ghost hunters mm-hmm. were like, this is my chance to get yeah. in. And it was just inundated. And I found this profoundly disturbing because mm-hmm. I was going, I mean, I part of the reason I wanted to go is there's a cemetery there where several of my soldiers are buried. Um, and I thought, you know, this is a, a chance to go and, and spend time at the graves of these people who were essentially institutionalized and locked away and, and never right. never left. Yeah. It was a, it was that kind of an asylum where they spent their entire lives there. Yeah. Um and I wanted to see this place that they had called their home for so long. And everybody else was just going to look for ghosts. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they weren't interested in the actual history of the lives of people who had lived there. They didn't care, you know, about what would what would lead someone to have to be institutionalized or how people were treated. Um, And then as I started to write this article, then I did research on haunted asylum tours to Mm. see, is that a thing? And it is. And there's this one really famous one in eastern Pennsylvania near Philadelphia where um, it's an institution that wasn't just for people who were declared insane, but also for developmentally disabled children. And there are exposés and stories about children who were left to die yeah and their parents weren't informed right and these stories are transformed into these ghost stories and used to freak people out on halloween and mm-hmm. that i find that profoundly disturbing right. and i think a lot of i mean no a lot of historians feel the same way that um you know it's cheap and yes i think that there are ways that we can tell those stories and in a way that does kind of give you the creep factor. I mean, Eastern State Penitentiary, also in Philadelphia, has like a haunted house thing, Mm -hmm. um, but they do it heavily contextualized. Right. With like, they use it as an opportunity to teach people about what it was like to be incarcerated. Uh Uh-huh. This, these other tours don't. It's, right. it's not about exploring the lives of institutionalized people or what it was like to be deemed mad um, or the horrible treatment that these people were forced to live in right. um, or to partake in, undertake. What's the word I'm looking for? These, the treatment that they were given, right? right? Subjected, Subjected to. to. Thank you. you. Yeah. Um, n- none of that is part of the story. It's all just kind of like, oh, crazy people are scary and their ghosts are bent on revenge. Right. And, and they're going to come and hurt you because yeah, they're, exactly. they're, they're they're haunting beyond the grave right. because they're so angry. Exactly. Right? Um, yeah. And there's numerous horror movies are based on that sure. premise, right? Like, sure. what's the one? Is it 13 Ghosts? 
No, that's, no, that's it's the, the house, um, house on Haunted nine. Hill. House on Haunted Hill is about that. Is about, yep. and then nine. the second one, Return to House on Haunted Hill, is this is the same thing. It's about mm-hmm. like a, right, a psychologist asylum superintendent who like does all these experiments on his, you know, on his patients to try to cure them, and um, yeah. it just completely bastardizes the real experiences that these people had right. for cheap thrills, which right. is very similar to what you see in the little Ori case. Right. Absolutely. That was something that I grappled with when writing this episode, mm-hmm. right? Because yeah. it's a spooky episode, uh-huh. right? So yeah, it's for our Halloween series, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, in, in talking about like the conceptualization of this story, I'm also including right all of these horrible details yeah right and uh you know and so i am also voyeuristically right. looking at this you know i have paid money to go on these haunted history yes. tours right and stand yeah. outside of these homes and you know get my goosebumps on mm-hmm. and you know try to take pictures of orbs and stuff yeah. like that right absolutely yeah you i've know? done the same thing not in the same places but yeah. in, in gettysburg i've been on haunted history there you go. tours yeah. and so i don't know i mean i, I guess buzzkill right right What's what's the right? What's what's the cutoff? Yeah, it, I mean, this is a, a question that historians are, at least I hope historians are constantly asking themselves. I'm constantly asking myself this when I'm writing: is, you know, am I fetishizing mm-hmm. when I talk about? Because I write a lot about violence, and so mm-hmm. you know, when mm-hmm. I write about violence, is there a way in which I am making it more lurid? In yeah. order to kind of make the writing pop. Yeah. You know, right. am to make I... the writing interesting. Exactly. To keep your reader engaged, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, and, you know, I like writing so that it's interesting. And yeah. so sometimes I do include details about, you know, I don't know if you'd call them salacious details, but, mm-hmm. you know, things that are fairly gruesome. And mm-hmm. and you sometimes I have to think, this person who died 100 years ago, I, I'm... I am writing about some of the most intimate, painful details of their life. Yeah. And I'm going to essentially profit off of it, you know? Yeah. So it's a, it's a, it's something that we need to, at the very least, be aware of and think critically about as we do it. At the mm-hmm. same time, I think these stories need to be told. Right. Um, and she did commit atrocities. Absolutely. Know? Yeah. There's no denying that she did. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but but to the level of detail, right? Like, what, where, where do you stop? Yeah, what's you the know? line between relaying the history and uh-huh. fetishizing it? Right, yeah. absolutely. Even the medical experimentation aspect of it, yeah. I find that really fascinating that they that, that was basically tacked in afterwards mm-hmm. because that really happened. Right. I mean, they... And I was thinking about that when I was writing it. And, you know, again, it's like kind of one of those threads that, you yeah. know, for the sake of time, right? Yeah, yeah. But, you know, this is... This is during the a period when, you know, women are being sterilized yeah. in, in, you know, large numbers and, 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 and people are getting locked, locked away for deviancy. Right. Um, you know, like, like this is a thing. Yeah. And, and I'll, I mean, we were just happened to mention this while we were eating lunch earlier, but um, J. Marion Sims, much of what we know about modern gynecology is the father of modern gynecology. Mm-hmm. Learned everything he knew while operating without consent right. on the bodies of enslaved women over and over and over again without anesthesia. Right. Black bodies were, were used in order to, quote unquote, understand the human yes. condition. Right. Right. And so these are, you know, so so again, there's like this recognition that this is a human body, mm-hmm. yet this this body has no like human consciousness. Yeah. Right. Or human yeah. human self-agency kind of things. Yeah. And. And 
to your point about it happening at the time that those stories are being written in the 40s or whatever. Yeah. So the 20th um, century. We're yeah, bouncing back. I know. I know. It's <laughs> That's what I mean by layers upon layers. Right, that right, right, right. It was happening at the time that this actually took place in the 1830s, but it's also there are aspects that are still happening in the 20th century. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't being used to say... Hey, everyone, we are still inflicting this kind of pain and suffering uh, upon bodies of black people right now. Mm -hmm. Maybe we use this as a cautionary tale to stop. Right. It's like you say, it's kind of like a loophole. Like Mm -hmm. if we... If we otherize it. Yeah, yeah. Right? This we isn't something we're so, doing. Yeah, it's no, something we're not doing. Madame so, LaLaurie yeah, did. Yeah, some insane person did. Right. It, right? Yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. So I, I guess the takeaway here is that there are places where horrific things happen, right? Whether they be asylums or or the cruelties of slavery. Right. But our ways of dealing with these horrifying elements um, are to be scared of the ghosts of the people who are actually hurt in those instances. So, you know, even if people, whether they be mediums or amateur ghost hunters, want to help the souls of those that are somehow stuck in this middle world or whatever you want to call it, it's it's their voices, the, the ghost voices that are really missing, right, from the mm-hmm. historical record. So like in the cases of the LaLaurie event, the omission of their voices, even at the time of their rescue, right, suggests that the recognition of their bodies was human, but it did not also include a recognition of their capacity for human self-consciousness. Right. Right. So it's their voices that cannot speak for themselves. They are instead frozen in these silent screams and the rote actions yeah. of being a ghost that they repeat night after night after night. Right. right. To be observed. Right. To be this, observed. This like voyeuristic sort of right. thing. Right. Do you believe in ghosts? Have you ever seen a ghost? I don't know if I believe in ghosts. I don't know if I believe in ghosts either. I I don't want to see a ghost ever. I yeah. will say that, like, talking about it right now, I have goosebumps. <laughs> I think my veil is too thick. I personally make it thick. Yeah. Um, I I have friends yeah. who, you know. Yeah, me too. Who I trust, who mm-hmm. have, you know, straight up said they see them, wh- mm-hmm. whatever. Um, <laughs> one night I was in my house, and so when I was in high school, I was a very big smashing pumpkins fan right yeah. so i'm like I, i'm like singing like i don't know it's it's i think it's from chair brock you know and and, and billy corgan is whining like jesus are you up there listening to anyone alone mm-hmm. and it went through my head and it was at night and it was in the middle of the night and at that moment i like stopped in my tracks and i look around and i'm like oh my god jesus if you really are there and you freaking send home a ghost right now to prove to me that you are alive I'm, I'm going to die. I'm going to die right here. And I literally, like, I remember, like, crouching down and being like, oh, my God, I'm going to see a ghost. He's going to send a ghost because he wants to prove to me that he exists. <laughs> this is a and, moment where I do not want to sign. <laughs> and, like, I mean, that, but that's the way I am, like, with it all. Yeah, like, yeah. I don't know because I know I will piss my pants, like, the yeah. second, like, anything. So, yeah. I don't know. I don't know what that means. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if yeah. that means I believe or I don't believe. I know that I've had... I, Similar moments where, you know, you're in a creepy, you're in a mm-hmm. house by yourself or you're in a different house. Like the, the house that we lived in when, when we lived in Gettysburg for a little while was an old, I think it was built in like 1872 or something. Mm-hmm. And there were ghost stories about this woman who used to like stand at the top of the stairs mm-hmm. and there was like a sunroom at the top of the stairs. And so like, you know, you might be going up those stairs at night to like go into the sunroom to like call your boyfriend or something. Yeah. And you'd have to like walk past that spot. And I remember being like... 
listen. If you're here, that's cool. I really <laughs> don't want to see you. Like, you know, I, I recognize your presence. I It's okay that you're here. I don't want to see you. Yeah. Can you just do that for me? And <laughs> I've, I have literally done that multiple times in my life. But I also, I do that. And then I'm like, why am I doing this? Ghosts aren't real. I think yeah. that there's this way that we kind of play it both ways. Yeah, yeah. You know? No, I definitely. Ghosts aren't real, but also don't, don't. Mess with me, ghost. Yeah. <laughs> don't, don't, don't. Right. So, okay. So I will tell my only experience. I, I I was staying at my friend's house and she did. She lived in an old house built in like the 1870s, right? And so most of the bedrooms were on the upstairs and then they had this one guest bedroom downstairs. And so I was staying at their house for the weekend and it was a party house, right? So lots of people in and out where we, it was a party house. Mm-hmm. Many of you probably know what party house means, right? You know, <laughs> so lots of stuff going on in this house or whatever. Um, anyway, so was I was staying in the guest bedroom, um, and the next morning I woke up and I walked in the kitchen and I asked my friend's mom, um, did somebody come in my room last night? Like somebody, somebody was sleeping in the bed. Yeah. I didn't, fi- you know, nobody touched me. I mean, there was no like nothing icky going yeah. on or anything, but I knew that somebody laid down in the bed. Oh my gosh. And left. And she was like, that was the ghost. Oh my God. And I was like, what the f- are you talking about? And she's like, yeah, there's a man that lives here. I've seen him often. He walks oh down the stairs. That was his room. Oh um, my God. And that was the ghost. And I was like, hmm. Okay. Cool. <laughs> cool. Great story, bro. <laughs> so again, right? Like literally somebody could have slept in the bed. You right. Know, like, or it could I, be like, you know, I got a dream. You could have had right. a dream yeah. where you, it was like you were sort of half conscious of, sure. you know, what was going on and so what, many things. Right. Exactly. Yeah. But at the same time, like, I know I've had not experiences like that, but like things that happened that you couldn't explain, mm-hmm. you know, that, or that we, we convinced ourselves we couldn't explain. Like yeah. one day on Christmas morning, right after my brother died, we all came out. Um, into the, the living room and my mom had to go pick up my grandparents and bring them over. And so we were like standing there kind of, and we're all kind of sad, you know, cause it's like, it's the first Christmas or yeah. the second Christmas or something after he died. And I think it was the first. And so it was like Christmas, but we're also, we're kind of like, mm, you know, yeah. and it was perfectly quiet in the house. And all of a sudden the CD player oh, turned Lord. on. Oh my God. And my parents had this like weird old stereo system where like you had to turn on like all these different oh, yeah, I remember things <laughs> until, until it would actually play. Oh, yeah. And not only did it start playing, but it like started playing in the middle of some Christmas CD that was like the third CD in the disc changer or something. It was like yeah. so bizarre. And we all just stood and it was like the lights turned on at the same oh, time. Oh my God. And we all just I'm stood there. Christmas. And it was like my grandparents who are, were like, my grandma was like a very strict conservative Christian. And uh-huh. all of us were like, is what is happening right now? Like, are yeah. we like all aware of what's going on? And mm-hmm. then, you know, it turned off and we kind of went on our yeah. business and we've never really talked about it, but it was, <laughs> it was weird. So things like that, I've, I, you know, that was the most obvious one, but. You know, and I, I have friends who have had similar kinds of experiences, you yeah. know, um, that were not, they didn't see a ghost, but. Oh, my, you my know. one of my very good friends straight up says she just yeah. full on like saw one. And I don't, you know, I'm not here to say it is no, or it isn't. No, me neither. I and think that there's things about this world that we, our human measly 
tiny human brain right. can't even begin to comprehend. So right, and and <laughs> and for me, one of the things I, I sit with it. always have to tell myself is like, if it's meaningful to right. you, right. then that then it is. Like, right. who am I to say? Well, there's a scientific right. reason that you felt that thing in your bed. Like, yeah. who why, who cares? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's meaningful, and so or it's interesting, or that's how you have explained it. And so, you know, who am I to 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 judge to judge that mm-hmm. or to yeah, I don't know. All right, folks. Well, I uh, think that does Abel's it. have seen ghosts, she said. Oh. No. No? no. <laughs> I've had weird experiences, but... Ghost dogs? Yeah. No. No. Uh, things dragging on the roof of your car when you go through the haunted covered bridge in Vermont. It's a real thing. Emily's Bridge. So do you guys have one of those bridges where if you park on it in the middle of the night... Um, uh, hands will will push your car off of the bridge, and when you go out and you see a bunch of little kid hands in the dust <laughs> on your car, we don't have that. We have Emily's bridge where she was abandoned by her fiance. They're supposed to run away together. They're gonna meet at this bridge, and then he doesn't show up, and he or she hangs herself on the bridge. And uh-huh. so if you drive through it, oh, you, you can feel, hear the scraping of her feet <laughs> on the top of your car. I've done it like three times and it's happened every time. That's You're really kidding. Weird. Oh my God. That's yeah. really scary. I see. I like part of me wants to have that happen. And the other part of me is like, no, no, no. Like there were these stories at Gettysburg about in the main building. I can't remember what it was called. It was like old main or something. I may be making that up. Um, the main administrative building, there's an elevator in there um, that's kind of in the middle. And there was a field hospital there in that building mm-hmm. during the battle. And there are these stories about um, that they tell on the ghost tours mm-hmm. about students who got into the elevator and went into the basement or something. And when the elevator doors opened, it opened onto the field hospital. Mm-hmm. And they could see all of the amputations and the blood and the screaming or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then the elevator doors closed Ugh. and they went back up and it was normal. Oh, I think I've heard of and that I'm sure before. it's bullshit, but it's also really scary. <laughs> <laughs> and I've I've been to places where you can feel like that eeriness. Oh, sure. And for me, it's often on battlefields. And it's probably just because I invest meaning in battlefields. Sure. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. I'm not going to lie. I mean, uh, Jason and I walked around... French Quarter in the middle of the night, taking pictures, going yeah. back. This is when you still developed film. And yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Orbs. There's orbs, orbs here. Yeah, yeah. And then, and then there was there was plasma in our pictures. Oh which, my duh, we were smokers, right? So that's us like holding the camera with a cigarette in our hand. Yeah, makes sense. But again, you know, again, yeah, like I don't, right. you know, there's there's part of me that like, yeah, I can't. We'll have to bring our ghost detecting software and hardware when we go to Gettysburg in November. Yes. Take a microphone and, like, leave it set up and see if anybody talks to us. If you have a really good ghost story, especially if it's a historical ghost story, you should email it to us, listener. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Maybe we can work it into our spooky series next Next year. year. Oh, yeah. Isn't that a... That's a good idea. Tell us about your favorite spooky history. Yeah. And we'll... We'll look at it. Personal histories included. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And also just... uh, weaving back to the original story that we're talking about <laughs> there was so much to the story that i did yeah. not i was not able to include into this copy so check out the show notes at digpodcast.org um and there's a bunch of resources there for you to kind of continue on this journey if this is a subject that yeah. you're interested in yeah and also visit new orleans there are plenty of great history tours to take so i don't want to like bag on the city or anything yeah. you know drink a hurricane for us yeah. And um, eat some beignets. Yeah. I've never been. 
This story is the story that the American Horror Story Coven. Yeah, yeah, she mentioned that. Okay, good. Yeah, Yeah, good. I've heard it before. When you started talking about the, like, the extremely creepy thing. Oh, yeah, it's definitely. I've seen it on some documentary or something. I think PBS has done. I mean, it's it's a very popular story. Yeah, scary. All right. Well, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, Instagram. I think that's it. Yeah. Um, And Leave us a review, please. Yes, leave us, but only a nice one. <laughs> only if, a nice one. If you haven't left one yet, why? Yeah, go yeah, do yeah. it. You no, should. It helps us out. It really does help us yeah. out. Um, as we mentioned at the top of the show, we have a brand new Patreon, um, and we would be so honored if you would support us. It means such. It means so much to us that people have already supported us. I mean, yes, we, I think you, we thought that we would get you. like two dollars, and yeah. it's well surpassed that. And it, I mean, it really is going to make a big difference for us. So thank you. Um, and join our dig pod squad, dig history pod squad on Facebook. It's our hangout group and it's really fun. We get to complain about Franklin Pierce. (laughs) Don't you want to complain about him too? Yeah. And you know, other things. Other things. All right. Bye. All right. Farewell. Thanks. Louise (laughs) and Dr. Lewis. No. (laughs) Dr. Lewis. (laughs) It's Lewis. Louis. This is in French. French. This is French. Okay, ready? The injured Bonds people were taken to the Cabildo? Mm -hmm. Cabildo. 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 The injured... Spanish. (laughs) It is naked, by the way. I can't say (laughs) the other way. Naked. Stark naked. 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 It doesn't come out. Who in his later depositions are you f-ing kidding me? <laughs> what is it squeaking? No, I just I see you. Like it looks like you were like. <laughs> oh my god, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry, whoever's writing in this. <laughs> We've I'm <made> angry. <laughs> <laughs> We've made so many. <laughs> we were just making jokes about Yale. Yale. Okay, you ready? Yale. Her rail metal. Nope. Rail relatives. <laughs> okay, the free women of color of. No, nope. like. Delphine gave birth to Louise's. <laughs> yep. Were assured that they had witnessed the events that first. Had. had they witnessed the events? Can I just say that that you should never Google the Liberator? Ooh, why is it gross? It's now a bunch of different stackable pillows that you can place upon one another to put your body in various sex positions so once i was trying to get like oh i was like when was the liberator first published um and i was like trying to google it really quickly to find out and then i was like "Ah, that's not (laughs) sex pillows yeah also the collars they were talking about the spike collars i probably told you the story about how i once had to i was talking to my students about those spike collars Please don't tell me you Googled in the And classroom. I was like, have you ever seen a picture of what one of these things looks like? And they were like, no, what are you talking about? And I was like, hold on. And with the power, with the projector on, I Googled slave collar. No, <laughs> not a good idea. It was not a good idea. And I was like, ah! and took it. And thankfully, I had like a good group because they were, they just laughed. But one of my students was James's boss's son. So he, like, went home and told them this. It was terrible. Anyway. While her slaves were, quote, stark naked. And these are quotes from the actual book, right? (laughs)
That's so cute. Stark naked. 